Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 171. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we serve a great God and we acknowledge that you are, um, you are holy and you are awesome. You're supreme in all things, but even more personal than that, Lord, we know that you are a Father who cares for his children. You answer prayers. Um, you visit us, you you take care of us, you feed us, you provide for us, um, you protect us, you give us comfort by your spirit. We know that you are um, in control, despite the fact that the world seems to be spinning out of control in so many different ways. Lord, we are going to continue to look to you for um, for leading and for direction and for um, direction in our lives. And uh, we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory of Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. This is another episode on the Live Internet Studies. My name is Arlben Lyman Hanavi. And um, let's just jump right into our Matthew 9, 14 through 17 study. This is a brand new study we started just a few weeks ago. So this is episode number three of that particular study. We left off last week and um, we're just about ready to jump into reading uh, the principal passage that we're going to be um, studying from this particular uh, uh, commentary that I made available. But first I want to make sure, make you aware of where the commentary is available. If you go to my website at tetzetorah.com uh, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com. And uh, usually the homepage doesn't look like this. What you're seeing on your screen right now, I've got everything all blown up for the uh, for the YouTube video. Um, but you can scroll down, once you find the study itself, you can scroll down into the table of contents, and we're in the section under Introduction and Replacement Theology. So we're still getting kind of acquainted with what the study is all about. And then from there, we talk, talked about, uh, few, for the last two weeks, we talked about um, Carm's kind of generic definition of replacement theology, of which I've come to learn, I believe, that Carm and Matt Slick, who heads up Carm, uh, I believe, which is an apologetics um, website resource, I believe they hold to a position known as covenant theology, which I might talk about later, but for now I don't want to talk about that. Um, so they aren't replacement theologians, but covenant theolo- theology, which in my opinion isn't, isn't very isn't a very good alternative to uh, replacement theology. I believe that that's what they hold to. I'm going to do some more research. I did a little bit this week um, to see what they hold to. But let's read the verse that's going to drive the study and the one that got me to write the commentary. So looking at my um, notes here, you can see on my screen, I say here's one version of Yeshua's parable as rendered from the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 reading. So let's read the passage and then um, we'll talk about it. So you're about to say these are Yeshua's words, or well, John recording Yeshua's words. Then the I'm sorry, uh, Matthew. Then the disciples of John came to him, speaking of Yeshua, asking, quote, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And verse 15, Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But, continuing Yeshua says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. 
continuing, Yeshua says in verse 15, uh, verse 16, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Now he begins the parable that's kind of going to drive my um, commentary, verse 16. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For, and he's using an anecdote here, of course, from real life. For the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. And then in verse 17, he explains a little bit. He uses another anecdotal um, story or saying, uh, real life kind of instance that would have been very relevant for them to understand. He says, you know, in other words, kind of common sense uh, statement. And he's going to draw a parable out of it. I mean, he's going to draw a spiritual experience out of this, a spiritual principle out of it. But first, he says in verse 17, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But, he says, speaking again from like common sense perspective, they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. And the reading I uh, chose for the Bible selection is from the NASB, New American Standard Bible. Okay, so from the surface, it doesn't seem like this is talking about replacement theology or supersessionism or any of those other things. Remember, we defined replacement theology using Carm's kind of dictionary definition. Let me scroll back up into the commentary and show you uh, uh, where what replacement theology is defined as in, in their uh, estimation. Here we go. Um, Carm says, replacement theology is the teaching that the Christian church has replaced national Israel regarding the plan, purpose, and promises of God. So we're having this discussion using the passage here in Matthew about whether or not Yeshua is trying to hint at or imply or would he or would he and the other New Testament writers particularly as we as we read through our Bible, Paul, would they espouse to this idea that the church, which is coming on the heels of Yeshua's ministry, you know, he's going to go to the cross, he's going to allow himself to be crucified, uh, the people, you know, they're, they're going to take his life, and then he's going to rise from the dead and ascend and take his seat at the right hand of the Father and then begin his intercessory, intercessory work for us. But the church, the Gentile Christians, are going to um, be uh, sent forth as the Holy Spirit is uh, uh, sent from Jerusalem, right? Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, and all that. And thus, what most theologians would refer to as the beginning of the church is going to take place shortly after Yeshua finishes his earthly ministry. So it's that setting of the um, introduction of the Gentiles into the picture, or the, the creation of the church, if you want to call it, you can kind of tell from my voice that I'm hesitant to acknowledge that the church began in Acts chapter 2. I think something new did began, begin in Acts chapter 2, but I don't think it was the beginning of the church. I think the church has been with us all along, just um, we didn't recognize them as the church. We didn't call them that. Stephen mentioned uh, kind of in a in a kind of cryptic fashion when he talked about the church in the wilderness, uh, but he's just using a common Greek word that would have corresponded with a common Hebrew word to recognize calling the people of, of God. So I think that the church began way back 
it, it at Sinai. My 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 um my uh, um theological perspective is that the church goes all the way back to Sinai, um, because the church includes uh, Israel, the called out ones from the nations, i.e., Israel. More specifically, the remnant of Israel who would remain faithful to God down through Israel's history, despite Israel's um, idolatry and, and uh, disobedience and things like that. God has already pres- always preserved for him a remnant. Who is that remnant? The remnant is the church or the body of Messiah, those who had genuine faith in God and knew that faith. Even though they didn't know Yeshua's name, they knew this faithful coming one, this prophet, this one, this this one that uh, God would send one day. And of course, the prophecies built on that about the coming one, the suffering servant of Isaiah and fifty three and things like that. So um, that is the church. But in replacement theology, the church begins at Acts chapter two at Pentecost, and thus this, it, we have this whole kind of foundational viewpoint that something new is taking place at Acts chapter 2, and it's something that is replacing or displacing the old. And what is the old in replacement theology? The old is Judaism. The old is the law of Moses. The old is the people of Israel. The old is the Mosaic legislation and things like that. So the new is the new covenant, the new people, the new Israel, the new body of writings, New Testament, um, you know, the new covenant, uh, new circumcision, which is heart circumcision, um, new um, sacraments, you know, baptism replaces, um, you know, conversion and, and, and circumcision and other things like that. So replacement theology is kind of a, a switching out. Um, changing of the guards. Uh, you know, the old is out, the new is in. So that's the context of our discussion as I scroll back down to the passage. You remember Yeshua has these um, statements about unshrunk cloth, old garments, new garments, and then he talks about new wine and old wineskins. And he has these statements that seem to feed into the idea that People don't put old. I'm sorry. People don't put new wine into old wineskins. So you can begin to be kind of. Um, even if you don't fully understand what Yeshua is saying here, you can begin to imagine or begin to guess. Um, is he talking about theology? Is he talking about people? Is he talking about covenants? Is he talking about swapping out? You know, it says new and old. You can start be- begin to start making applications. Maybe the new wine is the new covenant, the new teachings, and new disciples. And the old wine is Judaism and and the law of Moses. And um, you know, if we try to move the old in the new, if we try to mix them, there's disaster, right? He's of course talking about wine in the in the statement here, but he's speaking of more than that, obviously. So. Um, let's pick up my commentary and see what I have to say. Let me see how far I want to go into the introduction. There's two paragraphs there. Yeah, we're easily going to hit both of those paragraphs today, and that's probably maybe where we'll park it. And then we'll start to get into some Christian interpretations of this passage. So here's what I have to say about, we just read the passage. Here's what I have to say. Interestingly, we could discuss the meaning of Yeshua's comments about fasting within Messianic and Christian circles. And I think, in my opinion, that we would find much to agree about together. So it's already well known that there's many disagreements between 
say, messianic circles and Christian circles. I'm pitting these two um, kind of denominational branches of Christianity, if you want to call messianism or the Torah movement a branch of Christianity, like a denomination. I pit them against one against another often in my discussions, only for the purpose of highlighting the fact that it is somewhat well known that the, the messianic folks people who are led to um, lead a lifestyle that resembles Hebraic, um, you know, oriented um, uh, discussions and, um, uh, what do you say, um, a direction that follows after the commandments of God, keeping Sabbath, keeping kosher, uh, keeping the festivals, um, and all of that, that's, all of that lifestyle that, that's associated with Law of Moses and, and, and Judaism. We call these mess, these folks messianic, and in kind of comparison, not always a hard contrast, but we have the kind of the, the garden variety generic evangelical Christian church. But this would also include um, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. So, so basically, everyone who's not messianic, using air quotes with my fingers there, or Hebraic roots oriented, um, your average um, historical uh, religion that has no desire to embrace the law of Moses, you know, keeping Seventh-day Sabbath, um, keeping a kosher diet, uh, keeping the festivals, um, you know, to, uh, in, in response to um, feeling that God wants us to keep these, um, this, these life, this, this lifestyle, these festivals, you know, to include even circumcision for males, for many um, in the Messianic movement, although there's some, probably some disagreement there still, some questions, but I pit these two against one another in, in different uh, scenarios when I'm having my discussions. And, I, you know, Yeshua talks about um, in that parable, or in that, I keep saying parable, it's not really a parable per se, in his statement about, you know, um, why aren't your disciples fasting? And so I, I first talk about that, uh, about the, 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 uh, the, we could talk about fasting. That's not really the focus of my commentary. I pulled that in just because it's the immediate context, and it moves right in seamlessly into his discussions about the uh, the, the the cloth. And so that's where I really want to get most of the mileage out of what he said there. So I'm not going to focus too much on the fasting um, part of it because that's not. Um, driving my um, commentary on replacement theology. I pick up my commentary this way. However, when Yeshua continues his explanation, supplying the additional parable, again, I said parable there, but I'm not exactly sure it's a parable. I don't know if we would call it a parable. He doesn't open it by saying, um, here's a parable. Uh, you know, It could be true to life, where uh, we're describing um, uh, wine, wineskins, and, and uh, sh- uh, shrunk cloth and unshrunk cloth, new, you know, patching new clo- clothing and things. Those are all real-life uh like I said, anecdotes or real-life um, details that we could draw from. We don't have to call them parables, but I, in my commentary, I still said parables. So when he talks about these additional details about the unshrunk patch, um, the old garment, the old wine, and the new squ- wineskins, I say in my commentary that I found that many, many Christian commentaries begin to delve into what I feel is a form of replacement theology, right, um, we already talked about replacement theology, and they do this even if they don't know that they're doing so. And um, I like to think it's it's the result of centuries, decades and centuries, right, almost 2,000 years of a narrative that has now become quite 
commonplace in standard Christian circles. When I say narrative, I mean we're talking about um, kind of a um, a set of explanations that are not only shared and offered by most well-meaning Christian pastors, theologians, seminarians, and the like, but it's also now cross-reference internally, so that the 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 research feeds the current um, sermons, and the sermons then form the uh, the bedrock for additional discussion. So it's kind of a snowball effect, almost a, a bit of a feedback loop where it, it if you ask your average pastor, what do you believe about Israel versus the church, right? Or Judaism v. Christianity, something like that. Are Israel and the church the same thing? Does God still have a plan for Israel? I have a short little question answer commentary on that very topic. If you ask them what are their sentiments regarding Israel and the church, then they're going to draw from their own historical and theological uh, uh, research uh, uh, pool of, um, of knowledge and of wisdom and of, of a narrative and a dialogue that's been handed to that, down to them from their previous teachers. And then at the same time, their answers form the foundation for more um, continued teachings and sermons on the topic. So, you know, we're going to look at John Piper. We're going to look at John MacArthur. We're going to look at gotquestions.org. We're going to look at David Goodzik. Uh, these are well-known Christian pastors and Bible teachers of today's um, era. Uh, in other words, they're, they're all modern. I'm not using any, like, um, pastors that I that I could have done this, um, you know, bygone, you know, uh, uh, pastors and, and uh, sermons from, from days gone by, you know, like uh, um, Calvin or Luther or something. I could have drawn from great men of faith who have already passed on, but I'd rather pull some from some current ones because you can still dialogue with these gentlemen and ask them, can you clarify what you meant in your commentary on replacement theology? Can you give us further insight into your definition of what you mean by the church is not Israel, or Israel is not the church, etc., etc.? We can still ask them questions and get real-life answers. Um, Versus, you know, you can't have any can't have any uh, conversations with Luther or Calvin anymore. Uh, whatever they wrote down is there, right? It's it's set in stone now. It's 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 that's all we've got. So, as I read through commentaries on my own, I encounter a form what I feel is a form of replacement theology, and I think it's there even if they don't know that they're trying to describe it. Um, and so many of them are unashamed of discussing it as replacement or even defining it as replacement theology, but some of them don't use that term. That Remember, replacement theology is kind of the R word now, especially in our can cancel culture society that we live in, right? We don't want to talk about people getting replaced. We don't want to talk about um, cultures being wiped out, right? Where We don't want to disrespect anyone's uh, heritage anymore, right? I mean, you know, in, in these last just a few years with the cancel culture, the woke society that we live in, you know, um, everyone suddenly is kind of aware that you can offend someone just by saying something innocently, right? You can you can have a logo on your on your cereal, you know, it's a picture of a Native American, or and then suddenly the, all of the Native Americans are offended that you've got a picture of them on your cereal or on your sp favorite sports team, or you know the um, the the Aunt Jemima uh, syrup that I grew up drinking, suddenly that's offensive to African-American folks, right? Because it's it's formed in the shape of an African-American woman or a, a, an old an old slave woman or something like that. 
And so, uh, you know, all of a sudden, everyone's scrambling to change the representation of of other people because of possibly offending someone, and of course, you know, this this um, leads to the possibility of lawsuits and and all kinds of things. You know, people dropped your stock because you you didn't uh, move with the times. So, replacement theology, I like to think, is probably becoming. Um, in church circles, going to be somewhat openly offensive to you know if you just say, hey, "Well, the church replaced Israel." Well, let's stop and ask Israel. How do you guys feel about that? What do you think about the church has replaced them? Has replaced you? Right? The Jews are out. The Christians are in. The Gentiles are in. Uh, the Old Testament, it's out. It's old. For many, many years, the the Jewish people have really not said a lot concerning how they feel about replacement theology. You know, your average rabbi will just tell you, "Well, we don't we don't follow that theology. That's that's." something we don't believe in. But I think more and more Jewish uh, authors are begin to, are going to begin to, if they haven't already, I know a few that have, begin to speak out against this type of theology. And even the label Old Testament has been challenged by Jewish authors for a little bit. David Stern, Messianic Jew, uh, he, when he came out with his um, complete Jewish Bible, he was one of the first that I was aware of that challenged this label Old. He said, that's, that's kind of offensive. Right? How do you think Jewish people feel when you call their Bible old? Hey, your Bible, the Tanakh, you know, it's got Genesis through Malachi, what we call in our Bible Malachi, but in their Bibles, Second Chronicles. Um, your Bible is the old in our Bible. In our Christian Bible, we call your Bible old, and our Bible is new. And right away, those terms kind of um, kind of foster feelings and and uh, the create thoughts in your mind old is that which is outdated you know displaced it's out it's it's used up its purpose right it's something that needs to be, be replaced you know old clothes need to be thrown out sooner or later or given away to the goodwill or something like that you know uh, if i go to the fridge and i pull out an apple and it's it's an old apple you know maybe it's rotten it needs to be thrown out you know old food expired food needs to be thrown out so you know old testament so that's kind of where we're going to be we're gonna have some discussions about all that during this particular study let's continue my commentary putting the meaning of yeshua's teaching about fasting aside for a moment because i'm not going to focus on that so much in this commentary the question on the table for discussion today i say in my commentary is to what exactly are his comments about the patch and the wine referring that's mainly what i want to know um, when you read through the uh, parable or the story um, you know the statement what's he talking about i say in my commentary does this passage mean what most christian commentaries teach and we're going to find out what they teach is it which is that judaism and christianity are mutually exclusive religions remember most theologians on the Christian side of the family, of the Christian side of the, of the discussion, had been taught over and over again, and this goes all the way back to the early first, second centuries. I mean, it was this is a very, very early um, thought process that began, right? The if you were if we're describing that snowball again, it's it, the, it started snowing very early on in this discussion about Judaism v Christianity and replacement theology and things like that. Very, very early on, the uh, early um, Gentile Christian church 
began to try to speculate what is the usefulness of Judaism, the Tanakh, and the people of Israel now that Jesus has come and demonstrated who he is in God's plans, now that the Gentiles are being established, now that it is evident that Israel is rejecting this gospel message that's going forth, right? Paul laments um, over and over, uh, especially in Romans, how that um, uh, Israel has, uh, uh, you know, has a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Um, and that if, if he could, if he could uh, trade his own salvation for the salvation of Israel, he would do it, right? I think Romans chapter 9 is where he has those thoughts. And he tells us so. So he still has his great love for Israel, but he realizes that she's partially blinded, right? Her blindness is in part, and it's until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So on the one hand, he's he's blessing God for the Gentiles being brought into the picture. But on the other hand, he's, he's just in agony because his people, according to the flesh... Right, his national countrymen have rejected the gospel and they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And that rejection remains to this day. It's no secret. Ask your average Christian, do Jews believe in Jesus? No, of course they don't. Go to the synagogue side of the house, ask the rabbi, do Jews believe in Jesus? No, of course we don't, they'll tell you. So the blindness persists down to this day. And so it's natural for us to come to a conclusion, like many in Christianity have, that if Israel was on board with the program, if Israel's not been done away with, then why hasn't God opened their eyes after all this time? 2,000 years, the temple's not been rebuilt. 2,000 years, Israel has still not accepted Messiah. And yet, um, country after country embraced Christianity as religion and Jesus as Messiah, um, you know, as Christianity grew and spread around the world. Now it's the, the it's the main religion in the world. If if not, maybe Islam is a close second. I have to go back and look at the latest polls. So is Yeshua teaching? This very thing, when he's talking about the old wine, the new wine, the patches of cloth that you sew together and things like that, what is it in this little story that should grab our attention? I say in my comment here, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? So if you stop and ask that question, ask your average Christian, is Judaism a religion that you would embrace? Most Christians would probably say, I'm not sure, or just outright no. Um, or they might say, you know, I never gave it any thought. It's just not something I was really raised with as an option. Um, if you ask your average Jew, would you ever consider embracing Christianity and Jesus as the Messiah? Um, you're probably going to get a, a resounding no. Um, that's a religion for Gentiles. I'm a Jew. That's not my people's religion. That's not my belief system. Um, and then there's all sorts of theological pushback against considering Jesus as Messiah, right? You know, he claims to be God. He claims to be divine, um, you know, etc., etc. So, there's just a lot of distance between Judaism and Christianity as religions, right? It's it's no secret that the two religious groups kind of have kind of mutually respective differences of opinion towards the other person's uh, theological beliefs and the possibility of there being any joining and things like that. In other words, it really seems like they're incompatible with one another. Let's keep reading my commentary. So, I say, let us examine this topic and see if prevailing Christian teaching in this area is biblically accurate. 
right? I'm not going to just go on record and say that everything that Christians teach regarding this issue is flat out wrong, and you guys just need to correct everything, throw out all that theology that's bad, and this just change everything. That's not what I'm saying. Um, replacement theology, even dispensationalism, as I was reviewing covenant theology versus dispensationalism this week uh, in preparation for this study, there's a lot of truth in dispensational uh, theology, a lot of um, good, solid hermeneutical principles that drive Bible study um, that I uh, agree with. Covenant theology is a little less so. Uh, covenant theology, I'll explain it a little later. I'm not going to do it right now, but covenant theology uh, has kind of a more weak, a weaker uh, argument in my opinion. But I don't want you don't want to throw out all of of Christian teachings, right? Christian theology is not entirely wrong. To be sure, let me, I want to say this very plainly so it's on record so that people are not misunderstanding what I'm teaching. The main and central tenet of Christian theology is that those first five letters, C-H-R-I-S-T. I guess that's six letters, right? I can't count. C-H-R-I-S-T. Christ in Christianity or Christian. Christ is the foundational aspect of Christianity that 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 is right, absolutely, foundationally, unquestionably accurate. Christ, all right. Christ in Christianity is right. In other words, Judaism missed it. They got it wrong there. They are wrong. Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and they have missed him. They have misunderstood him for the last uh, thirty-five hundred years. And so, if that were the, if I were all the, that were at stake is who is the Messiah, well, then I'm going to take the side of Christianity, right? Um, I'm not, I don't believe that Judaism's view on the Messiah is accurate. Uh, they have missed it. To the degree that they're still looking for the Messiah, well, then praise God, right? I mean, at least they're looking. Many Jewish people simply become apathetic and they're not looking anymore. But as we're going to continue having these discussions on Judaism versus Christianity, we're going to keep drawing from what is right about Christianity, what's right about Judaism, and what aspects we need to examine again as we seek to be more accurate in our own theological positions um, and seek to be more pleasing to God in our lifestyle. Let's continue. I say in my commentary to be sure, so we're talking about um, uh, uh, examining uh, this particular perspective. I say to be sure, if Christianity replaces Judaism, right? We're entertaining this uh, discussion on Judaism v. Christianity, Matthew um, uh, 9, 14 through 17. This is the, this is a, a commentary that I put together, an examination of this passage. Judaism v. Christianity is a kind of the short working running title, um, the bumper sticker title. Um, if Christianity does in fact replace Judaism, I say, then there can be no such thing as a Messianic Jew, right? It's what David Stern will call an empty set, right? It's Messianic Judaism is no man's land. We've got Judaism on one side of the table. We've got Christianity on the other side of the table of discussion of theology. And there's nothing in the middle there. It's no man's land. It's an empty set. It's a, it's a, it's not a choice that can be made, meaning it's it really is the um the the dichotomy between those two religions and you have to choose one or the other it's kind of a binary choice right it's either judaism or christianity you can't have a combo version where you've got a quasi christian jew and a a quasi messianic christian or you know something like that that's well, that's what many people would agree with 
Um, I say in this view, right, that I'm describing, wouldn't all cultural and religious yet unbelieving Jews cease to be cultural and religious Jews when they become Christians? Right? I mean, if there is no Messianic Jew, if you can't retain your Jewish lifestyle when you believe in Jesus, when you come to faith in Messiah, when you embrace Christianity as a religion, are you expected to forego and jettison and get rid of all of that cultural baggage known as Judaism? Is that all it amounts to? Um, if that's your mindset, well, then the answer is. Yes, all of that has to go. That has to be tossed out. It's not compatible, right? It's easy for us, and I'm drawing my study to a close this part. It's easy for us, and we'll pick this up next week here in this paragraph. It's easy for us in these discussions to draw some comparisons between uh, conversions of other people groups in the world and the uh, the um, other cultural that they culture that they bring to the table for instance if i was born and raised in a in a society or a community or a um um a, a culture or people group that say practiced um voodoo let's say um i come from that part of the world where voodoo is very very um uh, popular it's practiced and you know people don't think anything to be wrong with practicing voodoo that's that's my my kind of my heritage religion um, but then suddenly I'm introduced to Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and I embrace it. I, I believe it, right? God opens my eyes and I become a Christian. I make a decision. Question, should I still carry my belief of voodoo, voodism, voodoo, voodooism? What do you call that? Voodoo. Should I carry that over into Christianity? Should there be a mixing? Is there room in Christianity for voodoo beliefs? Right? I'm pausing and letting you guys think about that for a moment, but it should be an easy answer. The answer should be no. There is no room in Christianity for voodoo beliefs. Voodoo and Christianity are mutually exclusive theologies. They are they are they're opposed to one another. They're light and darkness. They are um, incompatible with one another. There's nothing fruitful in voodooism or voodoo religion that should uh, enhance my Christian walk or or um, help it flourish, uh, help it grow, um, you know, help me draw closer to God. Voodoo is a dark, uh, poisonous religion, right? It doesn't matter um, if 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 it's something that you were raised with as a, from from a child. It has to go when you become a Christian. But can we say the same thing about Judaism? Right? Is Judaism can it should it be compared to voodoo? I hope you're saying no. I mean that's that's really dark. But we'll continue to talk about this. I'm not trying to offend anyone in these in these types of discussions. Um, uh, it's meant to have a kind of a a, a, um, a respectful dialogue uh, with with people who might think along these lines of. Um, practicing a Jewish lifestyle while at the same time being Christian or being Christian and Jewish and and hopefully it will get people thinking about the idea well wait a minute if Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another like many Christians kind of entertain the notion right if the church has replaced Israel then what do we do with Jews who come to faith in Jesus should we encourage them to keep their faith I'm sorry to keep their Jewish lifestyle or should we begin to kind of wean them off of that and bring them into a church and into a Christian lifestyle and, and begin to explain to them that you're a Christian now you don't have to keep the law you don't have to do all those things anymore you don't have to circumcise your kids you don't have to keep coach you don't have to worry about which days are Sabbaths and festivals and all that stuff because all of that's been done away with 
And so um, hopefully uh, this discussion will continue to be meaningful without being offensive uh, to anyone. So, But that'll do it now for um, Judaism v. Christianity. These are the uh, live internet studies, and they're brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kailat Tunba in Thornton, Colorado. And you can find us online at graftina.com, and you're encouraged to visit us in person or, at the very least, um, catch our YouTube videos, which are available online on our uh, uh, YouTube channel, as well as the link that you can see on your screen out right now is from our. Um, uh, uh, the, the YouTube videos that are made available on our website, so be sure to catch those. You can find me online at uh, tatesatora.com. That's my own Torah teaching website. That's spelled out as www.tetzetorah.com. From the homepage, you can see all the uh, commentary links that are available there. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just uh, something to get you started. Um, I hope you will visit my website if you have uh, an interest in the, the uh, topics that I have an interest in. So, hope that the resources there are a blessing to you. Speaking of resources, I also have a YouTube channel that you can find on youtube.com forward slash C forward slash uh, Tate Tate Torah Ministries, all spelled out. And um, I'm uploading videos every day. In fact, if I click on the video tabs, you'll see that um, I'm quite the busy beaver. Uh, uploads happen multiple times a day, really. Um, if you hit my website, make sure you do all of the things that you see on the screen. I know I've got a little cluster of, 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 of reminders there. Um, you know, subscribe, hit the thumbs up, uh, leave me comments, hit, hit the bell for notifications. Um, uh, share the commentary and uh, what is it? I can't remember all the things, um, but there's about five of them there on the list there. So just make sure you get involved, get it right, be, be actively involved in the theology that you uh, follow. Live internet studies brought to you week after week. Let me give you some uh, just some logistics, some brief announcements here. This is episode number 171, and um, the meeting date is February 19th, 2022, for the USA. Aside uh, the USA date part of the world, we meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Sometimes we start a little late, sometimes we go a little late, but that's the general time frame. In case you're interested in joining us, we'd love to have you join us live. The hour-long study is broken up to two general 30-minute segments. Um, first one is the study we just uh, finished, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? We're in part three. That's what we just uh, went through. Segment two is given over to the apologetic study known as Exploring the Shema. Discussions on the issues of Trinity were in paper three. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? And we're in part 103 tonight. And then we will um, entertain a, a video tonight if we've got time. Sometimes I run out of time. Uh, but the live series video, uh, SQSA live series uh, videos that is available for tonight. What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? Right. This kind of goes in line with the... Uh, discussion on Matthew. Uh, did Christ bring Judaism to an end? Did Messiah bring the law to an end? So I hope you can stick around near the end of the vi end of our uh, study for the short video that we watched there. So just some brief details. If you're interested in joining us, get access to Skype somehow. Whether you have a Skype account or uh, whether your browser will connect you to Skype, if you click the blue link that you see on my screen right now, if you click it right now, if you're listening to me live and you click this, right, that's kind of redundant, but if you were to click this link during the um, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time 
frame, then it would launch your browser. Most computers will connect you to Skype. Desktop, laptop computers will do that. I don't know about um, iPads, iPods, smartwatches, and iPhones and, and Android phones. I don't think they'll do it automatically. You probably have to have an app installed to do that. But we'd love to have you join us for Skype each week if you can. And if not, if you are on my website, then take a moment to just scroll to the very bottom of the website where you can see the... Um, uh, the black section, some Hebrew writing, uh, and um, look at that little yellow donate button. What's that there for? Well, it's there so that you can bless me with your resources, right? I know that you'd like to help me out, and I know that you, uh, I know this because people send me emails and ask me, uh, Ariel, how can we bless you, and how can we bless your ministry? This is how you can do it. Um, I'm in a place where I could sure use the blessing right now. And so um, if you're uh, wanting to know and wanting to help me out, then this is the way you can do it right there. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn to uh, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And we left off last week where we've been talking about the, uh, we're in the section on the, um, we're talk, where we're discussing the filioque debate, and um, the filioque debate is this um, topic that brought the Church of the West and the Church of the East into such a sharp disagreement with one another that they split from one another. This is right around the 1000s, you know, right, so this is like, you know, some time ago, obviously. But um, there's a passage out of the book of John that kind of drives the disagreement, the filioque debate. Uh, let me read the passage. We read it in the past. I'll read the passage. I'm not going to read the Greek that you see on the screen. I'm just going to read the English. And then I'll jump down into um, the uh, discussion that we left off with. So John records these words from Yeshua. He says, but when the helper comes, this is Jesus talking, for when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the, the question is automatically asked, who sends the Holy Spirit? Is it Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, or is it the Father who sends the Holy Spirit? I think the verse is self-explanatory. Yeshua says, I will send them from the Father who uh, from whom the Holy Spirit proceeds. So it's not that Jesus is challenging God's authority when we talk about procession, but Yeshua does say that he's going to send them. So um, this began a discussion on, well, who has the authority in heaven? Where is all authority vested? Um, and so the church had this, this wasn't the only thing they were discussing at the time, but this was part of the uh, of what was on the, uh, the the docket of discussion at the time. So I say in my commentary that I think that the verse is self-explanatory, and I give you kind of a, um, a bolded paraphrase of what I think the verse is implying. And so let me just read that bold part uh, before we jump in. I say that God the Father is the one who causes the Holy Spirit to issue from its place of origin vis-a-vis -vis believers being influenced by the Spirit's presence, that is, in regards to or in in uh, in um, in pertinence of that's what visa me refers to for believers being influenced by the spirit's presence. So God is the source, what Greek would call the arche, the the, the foundational um, location where where everything finds its origin. It's not saying that God creates the Holy Spirit. When I say that He's the source, what we're saying is that. Even the East and the West, they both agree that God is eternal and that the Trinity cannot be uh, uh, 
partition partitioned out um right the the uh, neither neither the east nor the west is claiming that uh god created the holy spirit um I, i'm pretty sure that that's their position i could be wrong there there's let's just a little little hint of um uh, uh in my mind uh, uh, that i'm not 100% sure that that's what their position is i need to go back and look that up again but i i'm pretty sure right so uh uh just uh follow me follow me uh, with that, follow follow what I'm trying to say for the moment. In their discussion about procession of the Holy Spirit, the discussion of of the Father being the source of all gets brought into discussion, into the picture, into disagreement. Um, if Jesus is given full authority to to send the Holy Spirit and to cause him to issue forth from his place of origin, right, to go forth and be poured out upon believers, well then. What role does the Father play in the Trinity, right? Is, you know, who's the Father and who's the Son, right? Who's wearing the pants in the family? And so this discussion, you know, got came to a heated point um, between the Church of the East and the West, and they split. And now we have Roman Catholicism on one side of the table and Greek Orthodox or, or, or Eastern Orthodoxy on the other side of the table. And... You know, there's still this disagreement over some of some matters of the Trinity, over of matters of authority, over matters of um of how we define God. Um, it's just an opportunity, I think, for the adversary to to wreak havoc in the church. You know, he's all about separating and splitting people and isolating people. That's his scheme. That's his that's his modus operandi, right? He he likes to work in the arena of of separating people, right? Like a lion uh, charging a pack of um, you know, of of. Uh, animals, right? Prey, uh, what am I saying? Let's say gazelles, right? And a lion is charging a pack of gazelles because he wants to take one down. What does he usually try to do? He tries to go after the lion. He usually tries to go after the stragglers, the weak, right? The, the, the young, and to get them to separate themselves from the pack because he knows, the lion knows, that there's strength in numbers, right? If he goes after the after the bunch, he'll get trampled. There's, you know, he's one lion and there's a bunch of them. You know, if, you know, in the in the in the wrong place at the wrong time, he's gonna get hurt, possibly killed. So what does he do? He tries to separate. He tries to to break the pack up somehow, and if he can do that, he can chase down one or two because he knows he has a better chance of overpowering just one one gazelle, right? Well, the the adversary is described as this roaring lion, and what does he do? He separates us as as people groups. He attacks us in places where we have our disagreements and where we have our differences, and he isolates us so that we can be easy target. And so we've got to be aware of his tactics. And unfortunately, as humans, we haven't always done the best job. So the church split from Judaism, right, very early on, right? There's that separation all over again, right? Old and New Testament got split, right? There's that separation all over again, right? Um, you know, Moses got split. For, Moses' teachings got separated from Jesus' teachings, right? They got separated. And now the church splits itself, right? Um, east and west. I say concerning this verse that um, God is the one who causes the Holy Spirit to issue force from this place of origin, but not necessarily in relation to some sort of creation aspect of the Spirit by the Father Himself. I don't. I'm not trying to say that Jesus 
created the spirit any more than I'm saying that God created the spirit. I think the verse is self-explanatory. That's my perspective. I can't understand why the, the East and West Church couldn't see that very early on. I continue in my own um, explanation, my own uh, interpretation of the verse. While I say Yeshua the Son in the authoritative scheme, he authoritatively and of his own volition freely dispatches, as it were, that which proceeds from the Father. So Yeshua steps in and takes that position. He sends the Holy Spirit. Yeshua says, I'm going to send him to you. Right. This must be, of course, um, the charge that he got from his Father. He got permission to send the Holy Spirit. Um, so that which proceeds from the Father is dispatched by Yeshua, that is, the Son sends the Holy Spirit to believers. And so we looked at some of those Greek words last week. Let's pick up the commentary now, the study right here. We've got a quote from uh, Wikipedia once again, which is going to say this about the filioque. Again, filioque is um, Latin for and the Son, and it refers to the the, 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 the creedal confession that talks about um the Holy Spirit sends and the Son sends, right? One church denomination added a phrase or a clause that became known as that filioque clause that caused a lot of um, people to be upset. Hey, how can you uh, alter our creed of beliefs? So let's, let's read about this. Um, here's what Wikipedia has to say. The Eastern Orthodox interpretation of the Trinity is that the Holy Spirit originates, that is, has his cause for existence or being, his manner of existence, from the Father alone as one God, one Father, and that the filioque confuses this theology as it was defined at the councils of both Nicaea and Constantinople. So, let me just explain it again. Originally, the church said the Father is the source. He's the Adarke. He's the one that, from which all things have their source. Yeshua the Son is begotten from the Father, even though he's uncreated. Nevertheless, he is begotten. This is language that's straight out of the Bible, right? The, be the begotten. Um, in a mysterious way, he's begotten. We don't understand what. Uh, we don't understand how he can be uncreated, and yet he is begotten. This is the language that the Bible gives us. So. The Holy Spirit doesn't isn't given this phrase begotten. He's not begotten by the Father or begotten by the Son. But since God is the source, He's the He's the fountainhead of all that that is. Then we can ask from where from whence comes um, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it is. He is eternally God, the Holy Spirit, just like Yeshua is eternally God, right? One one God yet three beings, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all eternally God as well. And yet, um, in the authoritative structure of what the Bible gives to us, Father sends the Son and Father sends the Holy Spirit. The Father is the source. He's the one that gets credit for um, being the... the uh, um, uh, the Arche, the, the 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 origin, right? The the unmoved mover, to to borrow a philosoph philosophical term. So, um, the, uh, Wikipedia records uh, the the history this way: the position that having the creed say, "quote the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father and the Son," that last those last three words, "and the Son," that's where we get the Greek phrase 
filio que and the son so originally originally we had this christian creed right nicene creed apostles creed uh these types of creeds that were developed in early uh christianity to define and um mark out what christians believe right a lot of work went into crafting in these decrees putting the wording together being very careful to describe what we believe as christians a lot of churches today um, still, um, you know, quote the Apostles' Creed and things like that. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with memorizing and and saying these creeds because, for the most part, they are accurate. They they do accurately describe what Christians believe. They're a very kind of convenient way to list out what you believe. If you visit a, a, a lot of Christian websites and ministries and you ask them, you know, what do you guys believe? It's not uncommon to find them quoting or listing either. You you know, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Confession, or some other type of creedal formula to show this is what we believe. So you can see right away up front whether or not you want to join us as a religion, whether you espouse to what we espouse to, whether you want to go on down the road and follow some other religion, etc., etc., some other denomination. So there's nothing inherently wrong with having a creed formulated to um, articulate what you believe. Indeed, the Bible doesn't have all of these creeds spelled out for us, so it's kind of convenient for the early church fathers to fat formulate these creeds. I think it's a, a, a bit of a service that they did for us, so um, I think that was pretty good work. But what we have, apparently, is that we had one creed that was crafted that simply said, the Holy Spirit which proceeds from the Father, period, end, full stop. And then we had another creed come along that added the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father and the Son. And it's that those extra three words that cause this kind of this, this, this big debate. So, the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father and the Son, does not mean that the Holy Spirit now has two origins. This is according to um, the uh, people who added the three words, right? So, we would say that, let's say, for the sake of simplicity, let's say that the Orthodox the Eastern Orthodoxy was the origin view. Let's say they originally had Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father. And then the Catholics came along and added Father and Son. Let's say that's what's going on. Then the Orthodox, the origin, the original, the, you know, the OG Christians, they would say, hey, why are you guys upsetting the apple cart? Why are you changing everything? Why are you adding and the Son? What's with this filioque clause, right? Why are you adding this? Um, and then the the uh, the the the, um, the Catholics, the the you know the the, the Johnny Come Lately group, they would say, um, well, no, we're not trying to say that the Holy Spirit now has two origins, right? That's that's kind of what's going on. It doesn't mean that the, that the Holy Spirit now has two origins. This is the position that the West took at the Council of Florence. So the West in this description is the Catholic Church. The East, with a capital E, is the Greek Orthodox or the Eastern Church. So they're having this discussion over where, from whence does the Holy Spirit proceed? Does he have one origin, God the Father, like the East, the Greek Orthodox teach, or does he have two origins? And no, we're not saying he has two origins, the Catholic Church is saying. So that's what they're trying to, they're trying to clarify what they mean by uh, from Father and Son. As the council, the Florence one at Florence, uh, declared the Holy Spirit, quote, 
has his essence and his subsistent being from the Father together with the Son and proceeds from both eternally as from one principle and a single spiration, viz. Spiration is, um, I say in my commentary, or they say, the definition of spiration is a somewhat obsolete term that refers to, quote, the action of breathing we get our word aspirate or spirate, aspirate, or you know the breathing out, the sounds, the heavy breathing sounds that we make um, when we're when we're speaking words and are trying to emphasize certain syllables and sounds. We can call that aspirations or aspirate or aspirate. So we get the same word here, aspiration. It's a somewhat obsolete term that refers to the action of breathing as a creative or life-giving function of the deity. So we we use this example of God breathing out the Holy Spirit. Indeed, there's kind of some wordplay there because the word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach. And it's the same word for breath or wind, ruach. And in Greek, pneuma, or if you want to drop the P sound, just pneuma, also refers to wind or breath or spirit. And it's where we get our word like pneumatology and uh, pneumatic and uh, pneumonia, right? All related to breathing or lungs or something to that effect. So, um... The idea is that God breathes out the Holy Spirit, and that's indeed what Yeshua does when he when he when he um, sends the Holy Spirit to the disciples. He breathed on them in that upper room. He he breathed on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. And so, the action of breathing as a creative or life giving function of the deity, or the action of breathing as a physical function of man, and of course animals, right? We breathe. And so this is the idea of, of aspiration. Well, where does this Holy Spirit originate from? Who's the source or the, what, what do they say there, the, the principle? This is a kind of a Greek philosophical discussion that, that predates Christianity. Way back in, in um, philosophical, in, in, in go, you know, going back to Philo, but as the name implies, philosophy, philosoph- philosophical, Aristotle, and all of these great Greek thinkers of philosophy, um, uh, had these discussions about the universe and the creation and the earth and what's the source? Where does all this thing? Where does where does all this come from? And they came up with this idea of of that there's this this um this principle, this elemental aspect, right? The the elemental um the 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 the, the building blocks of the universe, the the the, the um. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting a, a certain English or Greek word at the moment, but when it comes to me, I'll tell you. But they had this discussion about um, where does all of this have its source? I mean, everything has to come from something. And so they, they kind of created this idea of arche, A-R-C-H-E. It's a Greek term, arche or archi. And this idea is that all of this stuff must be foundationally uh, originated from something. It's kind of like the early Big Bang discussions, if you want to carry it into modern um, uh, terminology. You know, the Big Bang idea that everything in the universe originated with some source material that exploded and thrust all that material outward in every direction. And thus, planets were formed, galaxies were formed, stars were formed, etc., etc. Well, the Greeks had the same kind of idea. Well, that's the philosophical side of the discussion. In Christian terminology, in, in, in biblical discussion, we already have the answers to where everything came from. 
Genesis tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we know that God is the source of everything. But when John penned his gospel, and I'm drawing my study to a close with this, when John penned his gospel and wrote that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John opened up the idea to us as believers that God was not alone at the very beginning. That indeed the living word, the eternal word, was with God and was very God in substance, in 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 very existence. And thus this word created everything, right? The agents of creation. God spoke and it became, right? Remember, if you read through Genesis, that's that's how it reads out, right? And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be trees. And God said, let there be plants. And, you know, God said, God said, God said. So the spoken word is his agent of creation. And this spoken word is the living word, which John goes on to tell us, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, right? So th this this living word becomes Yeshua in the incarnation. Thus, as I'm drawing the study to a close, we begin to ask the question, if Jesus is the source of everything, then where does the Holy Spirit fit into the picture? Well, is he the creator? Well, those are different discussions, and there are different passages along those lines. But when we talk about now, suddenly Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, we start having these discussions in Christian circles as to, was Jesus the source of everything, or was it God? Well, we know that Jesus is very God in one way. In another way, he's not God, right? There's that mystery of the Trinity all over again. Jesus is fully man, but he's fully God, but he's fully man. And so, this is why we can understand and appreciate the split. I'm not saying I agree with the split. Heaven forbid. I, I think it was a bad idea. I think they should have come to a theological, um, even if they could agree to disagree, but don't split the church. I mean, that's, a, that's unfortunate if that happened. But nevertheless, it, 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 it's, it's, it's where it's at right now, and um, it doesn't seem to be coming back together. And it's been over a thousand years, right? Um, so let's continue to, to pray for one another because none, none of us has the single corner, corner market on the street of truth. None of us have got it all right. We've got to continue to work these issues out. And that's why we have these um, um, examining, uh, what do I call this study, uh, 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 exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's begin to wind down our study tonight. Um, we're looking at Jeremiah uh, uh, 31, and we've been reading Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and we're now ready to turn to verse 34 in our studies. We read verse 33 and, and uh, exegeted it last week. Let's do uh, this uh, a part of this this week. I think I might stretch this out to two weeks. Um, for this week, I'm just going to read the passage. I'll read the English, the Hebrew, and then I'll turn to the Apostolic Scriptures and read the relevant passage out of the book of Hebrews. And then I'll save the exegesis for next week. So let's just read the passage first. Um, on your screen right now, you can see Jeremiah 31, 34. Um, the passage reads in English, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And what we'll do next week is we'll highlight this phrase, um, Know the Lord, uh, in the Greek, I'm sorry, in the Hebrew, 
And we'll talk about what is the passage talking about knowing the Lord? What does it mean? It's a covenantal phrase, knowing the Lord. We'll talk about that next time. Let's turn to the uh, the Hebrew real quick and read that. Um, like you can see on your screen, uh, the, the Hebrew says, V'lo yelamdu od ish et re'ehu ve'ish et achayv le'mor du'u et Adonai, and there's the phrase we're going to eventually look at. Do et Adonai, know the Lord. Right? What does it mean to know the Lord? Ki, the prophecy continues. Ki kulam yedu oti lemiktanam vaad gulam gedolam. Sorry, neum Adonai. Ki eslak laavona ul chatatam lo ezkarod. That'll be the reading from the uh, from the, uh, the from the Tanakh out of the Hebrew and the English. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter eight, and entertain the Greek reading or the uh, the New Testament reading. And remember, we're reading Hebrews chapter eight, and we started in verse eight, and we're reading eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. And it's because uh, eleven and twelve are actually. Uh, the counterparts to Jeremiah 31, 34, it got broken up into two verses. And I'm not sure why the translators did that, why they didn't just put 11 and make it into one verse, make it more like the uh, the Tanakh, but it doesn't matter that much. Let's read the uh, English first. Uh, the English, this ESV says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And we can see that this is basically word for word, uh, a representation of the uh, of the uh, the passage out of the Tanakh, out of uh, Jeremiah. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And eventually, we're going to go on to talk about verse 13 as well, because um, I think it's relevant for the context, but we're not going to do that tonight. Let's go back over and read the uh, uh, the Greek of this uh, passage. There we go. Um, the Greek says, Kai u made didaxos in hekastos ton polite autu, kai hekastos ton adelphon autu, legon gnothiton kudion. That's the phrase we're going to look at eventually. Gnothiton kudion, know the Lord. Hatipantes, the Greek continues, Hatipantes, edesusin me apa mikru heos megalu auton. And then it continues in verse 12. That you remember it's been split into two verses in the Greek. Hati hileos esamai tais adikiais auton kai ton hamartion auton u me mnesto eti. And that'll be our reading from the Apostolic Scriptures for tonight. Let's turn to the video. That will be the feature video for our study night. And when we're finished watching the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and the Bible. Yeah, we're kind of like a dynamic duo there. Let's take a look at the question for us tonight. What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? Yeah, you know I was going to talk about this one sooner or later. This is a perennial favorite. 
Let me start with the Greek of this verse from Romans 10:4. Telas gardamu Christas eistekaiusunein pantitod pistuanti. And we read that in our liturgy, of course. The Greek word translated in many versions as end is telos, which conveys the idea of goal or destination or purpose. In other words, it doesn't have to be translated as end, meaning cessation or termination, like you popularly find in many versions. From a theological perspective, the popular view of this verse has Paul teaching the end of the law. However, as we're going to see from a few other translations, this is not the only view for which we consider. So, let's look at a few other versions and see what they have to say. Messianic Jewish author David H. Stern translates this verse as, For the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. And the Tree of Life version, has a, which is a translation put together by a committee of Christians and Messianic Jews, says, Messiah is the goal of the Torah as a means to righteousness for everyone who keeps on trusting. Additionally, we have the Scriptures version, a well-known Hebraic Roots translation, which reads, For Messiah is the goal of the Torah unto righteousness for every, to everyone who believes. Again, translating that word telos as goal. However, it's not only Messianic or Hebrew roots versions that challenge a reading that teaches end. Consider the NIV. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So it says culmination. Consider the International Standard Version for the Messiah is the culmination of the law as far as righteousness is concerned for everyone who believes. Sounds like the uh, NIV we just read, right? Again, we're challenging this idea of end of the law. How about God's Word translation? Christ is the fulfillment of Moses' teachings so that everyone who has faith may receive God's approval. Hmm, this sounds very much like Yeshua, Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, 17. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? Fulfillment of the Torah. Not necessarily end, but fulfillment. And we're going to talk about Matthew 5, 17 here in just a bit. So, what are our conclusions? We've got so many different versions to choose from. Which one should help us decide how to understand the Greek word telos? I'm of the persuasion that our theology about the law as Christians should flow primarily from the words of the Messiah himself. Let's see what he said. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Yes, Messiah fulfilled the law and the prophets, but I personally do not believe that the word fulfill there can possibly have the same meaning as abolish, terminate, or put an end to. What is more, even if I'm wrong and the law truly has come to an end like people say, it cannot possibly be all of the law that has ended. And how do I know this? Indeed, the moral parts of the law are still binding on believers, right? Murder still wrong, adultery, lying, theft, they're all still wrong. All of these parts of the law that we read about are still wrong, therefore it couldn't all be done away with. Paul himself wrote Romans 10.4 as a knowledgeable Jewish Torah teacher. He understood the scriptures. Paul was a student and follower of Yeshua, and thus Paul's understanding of law must agree with his teacher's understanding of law. So Paul shouldn't be saying that the law has has come to an end in Romans 10.4 if Jesus himself didn't say that the law came to an end during his time here on earth. Paul wrote in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You guys know the drill. Head on out to iTunes and catch my podcast. Search for my name, R.L. Hanavi, and you'll find all the wonderful podcasts that I've been able to put together. Or if you prefer, head on out to YouTube and check out all my videos. Make sure you subscribe and hit the little bell so that you receive notifications because I upload new content daily and weekly. Alrighty.
And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. I bless your name, and I thank you for this burden of teaching Torah. I call it a burden, but it's not a burden. It's really a delight. I thank you that you place these truths on my heart so that I can share them with other people. I know good, very well that I don't have all the answers, and that's why I delight in having Bible studies where I can discuss the ideas with other people from around the world who are also students of the Word so that I can sharpen myself, so that I can be corrected, so that I can allow myself to continue to grow in my endeavor to be a more mature child of God. So help me to ever be in a position where, yes, I love teaching, but I'm delighted to be a student. I love learning from other people. And so thank you for the opportunity to share these uh, biblical truths with other people. Bless us, Lord. Continue to protect us and raise us up, strengthen us and provide for us, and continue to um, help us to be forgiving of one another and to uh, have a trust in you to let our light shine to be ever aware of the fact that there's so many people in darkness around us so many people groping about not knowing the direction that they should go they don't even know they're lost they're doubly blind they don't know that they're lost but we have been shown the light we've been given this commission to take this good news to them give us holy boldness give us supernatural encounters to share share the gospel with people around us at our work at the school at uh at the doctor's office um you know everybody's always going to get tested these days you can you got to stand in line and wait to get vaccinated or to get tested why not share your um uh witness with someone share your testimony with someone that you're standing in line with lord help us to be um uh not ashamed of the gospel this good news of messiah and we'll be careful lord to give you the praise and the glory Bashim yeshua amen Thank you.